is not the lonely candle in the dark. Hope is the light of the candle in the dark. And you have to light the candle yourself. Hope needs sustenance. Hope needs energy put into it in order for it to survive. We're talking to Evan Tessamari and Trace Callahan about hope in this planet needs a name right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Evan Tasmeri's work in democracy reform focuses on improving current procedures so that everyone is actually able to actively participate. And the hope that's necessary for this work is reflected in the world of This Planet Needs a Name. Hope and determination are intertwined together both in his work and in the story. Trace Callahan, composer and sound designer, studied opera in academia and has been composing since they were very young. They've composed for several podcasts and are the composer for the horror escape room, Sophie, and its sequel. Callahan has a beautiful, intimate relationship with music, one that is deeply tied with hope and can be found everywhere in the themes and incidental music of the show. I spoke with them both as a collaborative team about these topics, as well as representation in futuristic fiction, xenobiology, and the place of art in our society. Please note that the following interview contains discussions of colonization and scarcity. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Drama Revival, Evan and Trace. Uh, we're really excited to get to talk about um, about This Planet Needs a Name, about Hope Punk, um, about all the things that's involved in this story and the work that you've done both as a creator and as sound design and composer. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. Uh, Evan, you work in democracy reform, working to improve procedures so that in the future everyone can actively participate, um, as well as supporting trans kids and survivors of, of intimate partner violence. Hope is pretty clearly an integral part of all that work. Mm. From where do you draw your hope and the strength to keep it alight? That is an amazing question. Um, I know sometimes it's easier than other times. I know that a big piece of this for me is that when I can't actually feel hope, I feel a lot of determination to get back to a place where I can. And to me, that hope for something better to happen is deeply defiant and very pragmatic. I'm not hopeful that something good will just happen. I'm hopeful that if I work hard enough and so does everybody else, we get to have better things than we have now. So it's very defiant. I choose hope because various things in the world make it a lot easier to choose despair. And I don't mm -hmm. want to live that way. So, and yes, it does inform what I do for a living and what I do for fun. <laughs> no question. This is no questions. Down Just, yeah, to the bone. Yeah. This is what I am made of. <laughs> yeah. No, that's um, that's definitely something that is very prevalent in this show. Trace, you've been doing song composition since you were very young, and you studied opera at the University of Maine, which depending on what era and area of opera you look at, can be a bit bereft of hope. Um, <clears throat> this might just be because my music professor mother likes the tragic ones. Mm, can't <laughs> tell. <laughs> um, talk to me about hope 
in the music that you've studied and that's influenced you and what sounds resonate with hope for you? What's interesting is I think that in a lot of ways, you're very right. Um, I really liked the comedies. I liked Mozart and most of Mozart is kind of ridiculous in a great way. You have people putting on mustaches and all of a sudden their fiancés have no idea who they are and that's considered perfectly normal. Um, (laughs) And there's a song about it. Yeah. In Italian. Um, my favorite my favorite opera is Gianni Schicchi, so... Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for me, though, as I was going through school, even though opera was... Opera was kind of what I studied because it's what I thought I could do. Um, but I was really interested in a lot of the other kinds of music I had never heard before. I got very into um, Hildegard of Bingen and Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm and uh, a lot of much older music. And it's funny, I'm going to pivot away from hope for a second because I experience it, I think, a little bit more like beauty. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it's about finding beauty in a single moment, in a single sound. Uh, Even if that sound is discordant, even if the moment is hard, there is something in that moment, in that piece of time that choice or story or breath that you can find that is beautiful. And if you can hold on to that, then you have something. And with that little something, you can keep yourself warm until the next moment. Oh, I really like that. (laughs) (laughs) This Planet Needs a Name has been talked up a lot uh, for its diverse cast in terms of ethnicity and race, as well as disability, gender, and religion. I want to talk about representation in our futuristic stories, and not only about the significance of it, but also its limits, right? Because Mm. merely having a presence doesn't solve our problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How has your thinking about representation in fiction evolved as you've produced this podcast? Ooh, okay. I mean, I can can start this one off, and I can just say a lot. (laughs) Um, most of what I knew going in was that I, if I'm writing about a future, I'm not interested in writing a future where, where I erase the existence of anybody. And in order to not erase people's existences, I need to write them into my story. And that was really where that started, right? That's not a very a place where I was trying to, I wasn't thinking about representation of media. I was thinking about, in general, trying to be honest to the, the story and to the world and to the people. Um, and we lucked out in some cases because we based our characters' identities on the cast um, and tried to do that well. And there's all kinds of stuff behind that. And as we've moved forward, I've thought more and more about what it means to see yourself represented in media and also what it means to write futures. This one that I'm writing is um, it's a, a future where a lot of those identities are presented in a way where we're showing a future where this is not the problem. Um, that you are the person, you are who you are, you have that background, but that background is not the problem. I think those stories are cool. I also think we need stories where we do show people with the struggle and we show the inequity. Um, so I'm only doing one corner of that, basically. I'm writing a future. It's not in any way a utopia. There's plenty <laughs> of things in it that are not. Um, but those things are not whether you're queer or disabled <laughs> um, or brown mm-hmm. or or whatever. Um And so the way I think about, so as a creator or storyteller, I can't solve the entire problem, obviously. I can try pretty hard not to contribute to it. So that's, that's kind of a big piece of that, right? Is trying to, 
trying to be inclusive of stories. Also, audio is an interestingly limited medium for anything that people <laughs> see. Um, getting people's like racial identities to read on screen in a far future where I can't necessarily use current day cultural references um, is interestingly challenging. <laughs> trying to do that in a way that will resonate for the audience and still feel real to the character. Anyway, there's challenges and stuff like that. And trying to make sure I don't do it badly is where I started. Mm -hmm. And the way I think about actual representation as a thing has just gotten sort of more complex over time. There's a lot of different approaches that are correct, and I would like everybody to be attempting to do one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if Trace wants to toss in something on this one, uh, because I feel like we've both thought about it for a chunk. <laughs> There, there's um, sort of like the uh, the thing I mentioned before we started recording about the tradition of um, composers and sound designers with really crappy audio. There's also a tradition where Evan says something amazing and pretty much exactly what I'm thinking, and I add on to it by going, yep, that. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, when Trace talks first, I say that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it is still something... Uh, it's something that I I always feel like I should be thinking about more than I do because mm. especially with uh, with this planet needs a name I'm very technically focused on the show a lot of the time when I'm thinking about it when I'm working on it I'm not working on story or uh, big picture ideas or any of that I'm working on how to make this person sound like they're standing to the left of that person um, <laughs> <laughs> but at, when I listen to shows and then when I think about what we're doing in context I, I, I have a lot of big questions about representation um, I have a lot of questions about which which things are helpful and which things are hard and maybe uh, serve the purpose of um, basically crossing the T and saying we did the thing, but really don't help the people listening. Um, mm. But I have mm. more questions than I have any kind of conclusion at this point. I'm still trying to figure that all out. Uh, but speaking of your uh, very collaborative approach to uh, doing things um, <laughs> <laughs> and the way that you go, mm -hmm, whenever someone says something, or the other person says something. Uh, this planet needs a name has what you've called in various places a unique collaborative process. One that includes prologues with the characters that are partially improvised. So, especially in a story that is writing on the motto, we can try things and see if we like them, which is a quote from episode two. Um, what are the aspects that make up your collaboration with your cast and crew? Oh, um, it's interesting hearing sort of my slash our own words coming back uh, <laughs> in the questions. So part of this is that Trace and I and a fair chunk of the cast come out of a theater performance background, including community theater and things along those lines. And so I came into this thing knowing I kind of wanted and, and also role playing. So basically, I wanted our cast to have some say in the characters that I knew what story I wanted to tell. But each character had a lot of room to change who they were and still carry their piece of the story. Um, and I knew going in that that would be for me more fun and more fulfilling. And I thought for the cast probably also um, exactly that give them a sense of ownership. In addition, while I drive story, Trace and I hash out a ton of it um, together. So it's definitely um, 
this is a thing where I like, I mean, I am the showrunner as far as the story is concerned, I suppose, but I have a lot of people who are helping me out with that. Um, and the, the model itself really does come from this idea of uh, building an ensemble and assuming that everybody would like to have some degree of creative input and then just creating space for that. Um, and they've all taken it on in to different degrees. Like some of the actors really jumped into character creation and helped me come up with what they think their backstory should be, what they want to explore. Um, and then others don't really want that much input and will just, uh, you know, give a few things here and there and otherwise just sort of do the job and move on. And that's fine either way. It's, it's, it's not required that they right. um, give more of their time and energy to the project. It's, it's um, just invitation that they can do so. Um, I would not, it's been very cool. I would not recommend it overall to people. <laughs> um, it, it's a real slow process. I mean, we're very, at this yeah. point, we're on hiatus, but it just in general, it made us, it's a slow creative process. Um, and it just is a very like, it's just an incredibly high trust process. Uh, yeah. We've been fortunate. We have a genuinely amazing cast of people uh, and everyone has been really in it in good faith. But it's something that unless you think that concept sounds fun by itself, like, yeah, let's create something together. Um, there's other ways to do this that are yeah. that allow for people to have input that aren't quite so like when I have something that's going to come up in an episode that a character is going to do, I will ask the actor, how do you feel about going with this storyline for your character? And then listen to them and decide what to do with it from there. Um, and that's great. I enjoy doing it. Uh, it's a lot sometimes <laughs> yeah, I, can't, <laughs> I can't just write a thing and then everyone does what I want um I don't want that I genuinely wouldn't would enjoy that less but uh but yeah it's a big time consuming there's quite a few of them at this point I think we're up to 11 so yes characters oh, people characters. Yes. ensemble I had a moment of like 11 what though <laughs> <laughs> people that must be consulted along the way yeah what about you Trace what are your thoughts on the process and how it looks for you as a sound designer and composer also is very something that interests me. <laughs> um, I'll start briefly just as the, the representative actor also on here who is not writing True. the script. Um, it's an amazing <laughs> process. Um, I've done a lot of theater. I've done very little improv and Evan knows how much I hate to add improv. <laughs> a lot of us who do dive into the collaborative process do it with a grudging, we really love you and we really love what happens, but why do you keep on asking us to make things up? <laughs> there is also, I sorry, Trace, I need what to interrupt. I, I'm good, I was going to say it, but you say it. Oh no, you can say it. If you're going to say it, go for it. There, there's oh also the, the tradition of Evan asking us to do things that scare the shit out of us. And I hope it's okay to swear on this podcast. It is. Um, okay, good. That scare the shit out of us. Not tell them until long after everything is over. And, oh, that was really hard. That was like the hardest thing I've had to do all year. <laughs> <laughs> they all do this. And then they tell me later. And if they told me up front, I wouldn't ask or I would offer to help or something. <laughs> but there's something about the nature of the process of being part of creating your own character, um, of, of collaborating on ideas, and even more than, than story, just angles and the way that a character would approach a moment in a story that makes us not want to say anything because we really want to do it, even though it's scary and hard. <laughs> mm, yeah. 
That's a mood. I can feel that. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a as a sound designer, the only <laughs> the thing that it does is is I've usually read the script. I don't know, several dozen times by the time we're dealing with, um, you know, recordings and splicing dialogue together. And then I start to hear things that come out of the actors that I'm like, oh, that's really cool. That Did I miss that? Was that in the script? <laughs> <laughs> um, some more than others. And I've learned to tell by the waveform how much improvising there is in a given scene. <laughs> 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 Uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. And and the other thing that I found, and I've only really talked to a couple of people about this with their characters, but um, because the characters are so different from each other and so deeply personal to the people who are performing them, as I've gotten to know the characters and the actors too, like I kind of create themes for them and musical like flavors for them. They each have their own like set of instruments and their own sometimes even like genre of music that tends to happen behind them. Um, but that's, that's a strange and evolving process that I'm not really actually doing on purpose. So I'm not sure how to talk about it. That's fair. <laughs> we have the coolest music. Cause when I asked trace, if they wanted to do this with me, I had forgotten that I was getting a composer as well as a person who could just play with sound <laughs> and that I was going to end up with these like gorgeous scores. And I just, it's so cool. <laughs> this, I want to talk about the feeling of the future music because I can feel it in some of the music in things like high notes and synthy waves. What does your mental landscape sound like for evoking the future while you're composing? Music is... If you think about the history of music, and this will be shorter than it sounds like it's going to be. <laughs> we, we don't take, we don't stop doing things in music. We still use hand drums. We still sing and chant. We still play flutes that are like bone flutes from centuries and centuries before there was a piano. We still use the piano, even though that's centuries old now. We, now we have electric guitars, now we have synthesizers, and I have always thought that the more, the further you get into the future, the more that music widens, and you'll have more different sounds, but we don't forget the best of the old sounds. So mm -hmm. for me, there's a lot of, I do love a good synthy wave. I love synths. They're cool. I only started playing with them a few years ago, and they're fascinating <laughs> and, and fun. But I want synth with violin or yeah. uh, actually more specifically viola because I have a thing about violas. Um, <laughs> I want synths with singing <laughs> and with a little drumming and piano and a plucked guitar. I want the old to stay, but to have this layer underneath it supporting it that is more electronic and kind of spacey. And uh, it's it's like in the show – things are happening that are very of the future, but a lot of the conversations that the characters are having and a lot of the things that they're facing at their core are the same things that people have been dealing with forever. The past doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I actually really like that perspective because I think that it definitely also continues to tie into this, this, the concept of hope in the show. Um, because 
if you forget the past, it's going to make moving forward into a, a better future more difficult. So I think it's also like embedded in this whole concept of hope. Um, yeah. yeah, I very much appreciate that. That's very good. <laughs> and also, I'd love a synthy wave. Like, yes, yeah, they're just pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Trace also went ahead and straight up invented a genre for one of our later episodes. Oh, hey, that one of the characters go. likes to listen to. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I actually forgot about that. <laughs> Which is funny because I listened to it earlier today. <laughs> it's just a little teaser for people who haven't listened to the show. Yeah, but you'll know it when you hear it. There are no synthy waves at all. <laughs> Correct. Evan, in your interview with Rose Eveleff on the podcast mm. Open Worlds, you talked about knowing xenobiologists. And using the knowledge you gained from them to develop certain aspects of the science of this planet and and this future. Mm -hmm. I want to know more. I am a huge xenolinguistics nerd, which surprises no one here. Um, (laughs) 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 So tell me about the xenobiologists and about any research that you may have done into xenobiology for the show. I know a couple of people um, who work in that field. One of them has helped me out as a consultant on the show. Hi, Tessa. Um, And has been just lovely. Uh, I will say that, or science fiction, um, in the same sense, Star Trek is. This is hand-wavy science fiction. Um, Our fans who want hard science fiction spend a lot of time trying to explain how the physics can work. I'm breaking physics and and very aware of it. Um, But, (laughs) and that's, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, within the, within the story of the world, um, however, especially with life on an alien planet, I really wanted the life to hang together. I wanted it to feel like we're bumping up against an ecosystem that feels like it could be as rich and diverse and interesting as the one we have here on Earth. Um, and while being still completely and impossibly alien, just different and weird. So with the help of Tessa and a couple of biologist friends, I backed up a lot and then I evolved life differently Um, (laughs) given slightly different conditions. Like the planet is not earth. And there are a few very specific ways it's different that guided some of that development. Um, And then I took that forward into where our characters encounter these life forms and the actors and the characters don't actually know most of this. Uh, They just know what they run into. Uh, But there are essentially a few different phyla there are different kingdoms of life there are there's kind of an entirely different basis to mm, it's not that different there's a different basis to the life where it's a little bit harder to answer questions like is it a plant or an animal um (laughs) but that's also true on earth we have (laughs) chunks of life that don't categorize easily so i was just playing with that i thought it was interesting i've always liked things that feel um deeply alien in a kind of like it feels like it's its own thing and i you know, when you're watching or reading or listening to something and you're like, ooh, I don't know what that is, but I, I don't think I could have made it up exactly like that. Like, what's happening? There's something bigger beyond this, right? So that's what I was aiming for. And tapping in, you know, Tessa, tapping in biologist friends, tapping in anybody to help with that. I did it for the fun of it. Um, I could tell this story with less of that. Uh, and it would probably be fine. But 
creating together is just delightful. So I can't go into the, the, what's different about the biology without spoiling right. the entire thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the characters themselves are also encountering it slowly, as is the listener. Um, and that's been uh, delightfully fun. <laughs> I love that the plants are blue. <laughs> yeah, there's actually... So there's on a Earth, reason for that. Explain. There, oh, yeah. No, it's... it's Well, there's a difference. So on Earth, the primary chemical that plant... I am not... This is not my science. I'm a sociology person. But anyway, the primary thing that, that cl- plants use to process sunlight is chlorophyll. Um, it doesn't have to be. Uh, and so part of the reason for it is just that the, the spectrum of our light. So <laughs> if the star you're orbiting has a different light, your plants can evolve different chemicals that do those same basic processes, some of which can be blue. And if your sun is really, 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 really bright, it's entirely possible that there's a lot of light and you'll have a lot of life forms that have to shed light and it will be darker or brighter in color to do that. Or brighter so in color cool. to do that, not darker. Sorry. Darker is like if you need to keep all of your light. So right. shade plants are dark. Um, I enjoyed playing I with that, but, but it's I blue because I like blue. And then I went backward and figured out the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Love to go back and figure out how to make stuff work. <laughs> yes. But really, I mean, it could be blue if the star was blue. Yeah. I love that. It's so good. <laughs> science. Um, sort of science. Don't look too closely at it, science. <laughs> well, well, don't. Yeah, that's that just ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> Radio Drama Revival started as a real radio show in Maine in 2007 and has been showcasing fiction podcasts and elevating the voices of their creators since then. We have a Patreon, and it's really crucial to keep this show afloat. Our team is growing bigger in order to handle all our production needs, and they deserve to be paid fairly for their work. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. You can hear past bloopers from our previous host, David Reinstrom, and even blooper files on me already. I'd love to see you in our Patreon Discord, where we ask you for questions for interviews if you have any, and talk about podcasts, and also whatever weird fact David has come across recently. Again, that's patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Any amount helps. Really. Now, back to the interview. So let's let's get into some of the some of the gnarlier bits here. Ooh. This planet needs a name is a deliberately hope punk in in so far as like it is a deliberately hopeful story about colonizing a planet for future generations. Mm-hmm. In the interview on Open World, um, Evan talked about uh, subverting tropes by confronting this conversation directly within the story. I'd like to talk with both of you about the coexistence of a colonization narrative within the hope punk genre. What specific decisions have you made within the story or the audio design or just within the project to address this? It is the heart. The contradiction is the heart of a story for me. Um, Part of the fascination is the systems we create where reasonably decent people do terrible things. Uh, And I've, I kind of wanted to look at that and also the decisions people make when they're desperate. And essentially, when I said that in the interview with Rose, I was sort of sitting where I am still sitting, which is I am interested in exploring that and trying to do it justice. And I'm not entirely certain how we're going to thread that needle yet. 
Um, I have ideas about where that will go. Uh, <laughs> the one thing I wasn't going to do, I mean, there's a bunch of things that aren't going to happen because, uh, geez, it's very hard to say anything without giving this away. Um, spoiling a variety of things because this is really, really central to the conflict of the show. It's often described as like a warm, gentle show, which is true uh, in the sense that that's what the character interactions tend to be. Uh, but it's telling a very, very hard truth underneath that uh, about those desperate choices people make. So a lot of it comes down to um, me trying not to tell the standard, like, and then we went to an empty planet and turned it into a home. But instead to tell the, like, what do you do? when it's, it's, it's just really what do you do when the planet's not empty? Um, mm -hmm. And you're just people. Uh, I <laughs> So I don't have a super satisfactory answer. I know that's my question. Um, yeah. And I've tried to let the openness of that question guide it. I have had a few people get stressed out enough by that question that they've like emailed me asking me to like guarantee that my characters will never do anything terrible. Um, and I, I can't, yeah, I know. And I, I, I feel for them, but I can't do that. They're people and people. Yeah. And people make mistakes and do terrible things. People sometimes do terrible things. So, yeah. um, and anyway, I'm sorry if that's not a very satisfactory answer. I think what the centerpiece of it is, is that just feels like the big question. And I am still not completely certain I'll manage to do it justice. Uh, mm -hmm. But I am <laughs> very interested in trying to. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's um, perfectly fair and valid, right? Because it's... Uh, it is the question of the show, and it's also a very complex one, right? Um, it's easy to tell a bad colonization narrative where you just take over. Yep. And it's easy to tell one where, conveniently, everything works out fine. Um, yeah. And it's also easy to tell one where, obviously, colonizing would be wrong and you don't do it. Those are yeah. all answers to the question that are different kinds of relatively easy to tell. And I just didn't... I just wanted to confront it more directly than that. Yeah, um, I think that that was, uh, I think that was what was interesting to me. I I actually feel a little guilty in that um, <laughs> what I have done as much as possible throughout the show is create a lot of different places that all sound and feel like a warm and in welcoming home, um, <laughs> whether it's the spaceship or um, various places that the characters are or um, once they... Uh, start to experience the place, the, the planet that they're on, um, they all sound like somewhere you would want to be. These people all wanted to go to this planet for whatever reason, and they want to be there. And I wanted it to be a place that you would want to be so that the attachment is real. And that adds another level. You know, if you're, if you're, looking at a planet that is not empty, but is also not inviting, that's also a very different version of that story. Mm. Um, if Agreed. It's, if it's full yeah. and rich and the life is cool and you would want a vacation there and maybe, you know, stay forever, <laughs> then the choice is not going to be the same. Um, and like I planet tourism. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very much guided. You know, I, I work script by script. Um, I, I sometimes know a little in advance some things that might happen down the road, but for the most part, when I'm making the sounds for the show, 
I don't know a lot other than where things are right now. Um, but I really did want to make sure that um, it felt like a place that could be home because that is part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a really good perspective to throw in here because I think that a lot of analysis still when it comes to podcasts tends to divorce story and sound. Mm. Um mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, to make sure that we got some perspective of how the sound influences the central question in the story. And the fact that you are complicating it by making it sound like somewhere that could be home is, I think, very integral to the success of the show. What kind of works have influenced or helped shape this conversation between colonization and a hopeful future? And I'm, I'm talking about you know, um, people who inspired you or books or movies, articles, music, whatever is helping you figure out how to untangle that knot, if anything. Okay. So (laughs) my literary inspirations, uh, run from the first author who lit up my mind with the idea that you could create worlds was Ursula Le Guin, who also tried to confront a lot of these questions in her own way. Um, (laughs) and she, I think, should get a fair chunk of credit for doing that in the 70s. Um, yeah. So I absolutely, I kind of watched her writing. I grew up alongside a lot of her work, which was very cool. Um, much more recently, and then later, like Octavia Butler, I read N.K. Jemison, who is freaking brilliant. Oh, amazing. Um, and a variety of other people who tell um, complex stories without a strong sense of good or evil, but with a lot of like, very real people in situations that are not so illuminating a truth and that tend to confront fairly directly those questions of difference um, because I'm interested in them and because a world without them feels fake, extremely fake. And I, I don't, (laughs) I don't like that. So those are the stories I gravitated to anyway. That's, so that's my literary background, lots and lots and lots of people that I read, but that's kind of where it settles. Um, And then the place where my understanding of, talking about colonization comes from is actually my work um, over, not now, but previously. Um, I worked with uh, a lot of people who were part of, at that point, student organizations that were working on similar things. Um, and I got to essentially assist them. Um, it was staff support. I made sure they could spend money and help them do event planning and stuff like that. But it meant I got to be in the room for some really amazing conversations among students of color, among students of vo- lots of different groups um, who are sometimes working separately and sometimes working together. So conversations around different responses to colonialism and anti-colonialism and d- just very, very cool spaces that... Um, that I got to be in and that I got to, to some extent, contribute to and learn from. Um, I am incredibly grateful to the students because those are all conversations that I am incredibly lucky to have been in and also wouldn't have gotten to be in as easily, right, without them inviting me. Um, So I hear a lot of their voices in my head when I'm attempting to write. I hear Alejandra talking about her family. You know, I hear various people telling me things about their own lives and their stories and how those intersect. So for me, those colonization narratives are always centered in um, a person who has talked to me like about their life that that's always there Uh, and kind of is part of when I try to tell it. I don't know. I'm always going to be on the side of the people who had things taken away. Like that is always going to be where I land, (laughs) but hopefully in a relatively um, nuanced way. But yeah, it was people. 
there's a lot of fiction and then a lot of just actual human beings who were very, very generous with their truth. I knew this would have been, this was a good question. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I just read this question. I'm like, this is going to have a good answer. I can feel it. Uh (laughs) I am fascinated by people. I got a sociology degree because I'm fascinated by people. And I've been um, just deeply lucky with the people who've shared their lives with me. It's very cool. That is very cool. (laughs) Chase, how about you? Anything for you in terms of sound, music, or, or acting also for your character? Um. I've been actually like listening to the answer the whole time while trying to think of anything that I could say that would make any sense at all. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really have to make sense. We don't ask for things to make sense on this show. Oh, good. Then we're all set. Um, I said acting wise, my, I, I just, I don't know. The story kind of lends itself to whatever happens and comes out of my face and ends up on the show. Um, <laughs> That's fair. All of the um, actors say things like this. Yes, it's really easy to act when the story is right there. Mm, You're good actors. (laughs) Um, I've watched, I think, almost every sci-fi planet exploration show there is. I am a huge sci-fi nerd. I watch a lot less television than I used to just because I have zero time. Um, But, you know, I think of uh, the stories that I hated, like um, Earth 2, for example, Mm. um, Mm. from I think the mid 90s, which had some interesting characters and looked like it was going to start maybe thinking about this question and then abruptly just stopped and it went in a whole other direction. Um, So sometimes I feel like the media influences that I uh, that I can think of are more about what not to do. Um, (laughs) I think, though, uh, musically, and I'm, I'm going to call out two composers whose work I just completely love and for the very same reason. Um, one is Jessica Curry and the other is Austin Wintory. And both because their music does what we talked about a little while ago with the, the idea of this question and the, the central um, conflict and, you know, how, how to leave room for, for all the possibilities Um the music and sound in this show doesn't tell you anything about what to feel or who's right or um, what direction things should go in. It, I wanted it to be open and uh, leave space for whatever you were going to bring to it as a listener. Mm-hmm. And the same thing kind of with the soundscapes. They're there and there's a lot going on in them, but nothing that's like a bl- blinking red sign that makes you come to a certain conclusion. And it's it's something that I love very much about both of their work, that they can evoke a place and a moment and a world. Um, I think about um, one of Austin Wintry's scores, Abzu, is about uh, underwater exploration. And the whole thing is this beautiful, sometimes completely chaotic, but sometimes very sparse and flowy um, thing where you can you can literally dive in and uh sorry (laughs) and um, it was right there (laughs) it was it was (laughs) and just just add your own uh mental image and experience and angle to what you're hearing so i guess for me the inspiration is how to leave room for everything else while still doing what i want the music to do um 
And the same thing with the soundscapes, how to make them present and something that is important and informative and immersive without any without in any way being a big hammer that bludgeons people over the head with plot or uh, <laughs> message. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's hard. Is, yeah. It is hard. It is hard, especially when um, a lot of people's exposure to like soundtrack, right, is through Hollywood movies and big budget movies where mm-hmm. a lot of the music is purposefully built to hammer home the message of the scene or the emotion of the scene. Yes. Instead of doing literally anything else. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think the closest that that I like to come to that is um, once in a while there is a oh there's music that means that something is probably about to get kind of real. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but who knows in what way it's going to get real? <laughs> well, right? you've got a couple of motifs that come yeah. back with particular storylines or characters, but they're yeah. not designed to tell the audience how to feel about the thing. Yeah. Um, we're just, oh, we're we're back to this. We're back in okay. this space, yeah. <laughs> but I will say yeah. that in some cases, the association becomes strong. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I now have particular feelings when I listen to Within Gravity that are based on where that music shows up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, backward. The music ends up telling me how to feel, but only because it was under You remember how you felt feelings. when you've heard it before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For people who would like to know more about Within Gravity in particular, which was just mentioned, um, Trace was on an episode of the podcast, How I Make Music. Yes. That's the name of the podcast, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, where tra- they, they talk specifically about making Within Gravity. Yes. Um, I highly recommend it. I listened to it before this, before this interview. Very good. This future in this show is a post-scarcity future with a focus on material science instead of artificial intelligence. Yeah. So why material science instead of AI? And what is it you think people overvalue about AI in science fiction stories, if anything? So I don't want to throw any shade here because some people tell AI stories very well. Um, mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I appreciate them very much when they do. As a, as a writer, I... I can't reconcile having artificial intelligence that's conscious with enslaving it, which means I can't tell that story unless I want to make the treatment of the AI part of the story, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a perfectly fine story to tell, but not the story I wanted to tell with this. Um, Absolutely. In this future, that's just not, that wasn't one of the conflicts I wanted to set up. And I created the, this particular sort of world ages ago as part of a failed novel. Um, So I kind of already knew, I know where they're going to be in like 10,000 years, right? So I had some ideas about what that was going to look like. The post-scarcity piece um, was was my, I had some big questions about what aspects of human nature um, and the things that humans do are rooted in scarcity and what things look like if people don't have to fight for basic necessities. Um, I still have those questions. I'm trying to explore those things uh, a little bit. I can't, I mean, I don't know. We've never had that happen (laughs) on earth. So I'm guessing. Um, But that was why, and the material science became like, in what way does this become science fiction? How do I explain how we didn't develop AI? Because we're not super far from some sort of AI at this point. We're certainly good at artificial, artificial intelligence, right? I can talk to my phone, it talks back. Um, There's nothing, there's no cognition in that, but we're not, incredibly far from being able to develop artificial cognition if we want to. 
Um, and so I started thinking, like, under what circumstances would that not happen? Because I don't want to tell that story. How do I create? <laughs> how do I create a future path where we don't do that? And one of those ways was creating a future where um, some things happened that meant that the issues of immediate scarcity were much bigger than issues of mm -hmm. having self-driving cars. So mm -hmm. we were going to instead work on developing ways to make sure everyone got to eat, developing ways of getting rid of radiation, developing ways of, so that became, oh, chemistry, materials. We're gonna look at the creation of stuff um, as part of that solution. So- Love that. Yeah, basically that. I cr figure out what I wanna tell for a story and then I walk backward to figure out how to justify yeah. it. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> So I've got um, I got one last uh, question for you. Um, in episode two, Cyrus says this line that I love: "We will live here a long time. Why should we live without art? <laughs> art and its place in our society has always been extremely contentious, especially in regards to its value and its role during times of scarcity, austerity, grief, and turmoil. Why does art have this important place?" in the terraforming and colonization of a new planet in your story. I don't remember writing that. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I, two was, was a while back. So. I'm pretty sure I did write it because Andy doesn't improvise that much. Um, so, but I, I can answer as, you know, the person who doesn't actually remember writing that exact line, but who very deliberately wrote a fair amount of art and music and creation into the piece. Um, and it, it really does. I mean, that could have been me. If we're going to live here, why would we live without art? I do believe, I mentioned I'm fascinated by humans. Uh, I think the primary thing that makes us human is that we tell stories uh, to attempt to make meaning out of the world. And when I say tell stories, that's my art form. But we also create songs and paintings and tapestries and whatever else, like pictures and words and sounds that create stories are how we exist. It's what we do. So to me, if we're going to go somewhere and be human there, we have to bring art with us. Like, we're not, we're not ourselves without that. Um, and having that line come out of, I know why I had that line come out of Cyrus. Um, <laughs> one, one is that he is always completely certain he's right. Um, yeah. And the other is that as the most grounded material character, the one who's like making the stuff, I wanted the making the stuff character to be the one who said, or one of the ones who said, no, art's important too. Um, and he's very clear that he is not an artist. Um, right. But, sure but he still values it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember yeah, okay. a few of those lines from later. <laughs> but yeah. And I do think on some level this like, now this is just what makes us people. Um, I know some people might not see humanity in quite that way. Uh, but it's so central to how I experience like the best of what we are. Um, it's our art and our stories and I guess the things that make us laugh and the ways that we work together. We're, we're pretty good at that when we decide to be. Uh, and those are the things that I love about us. So of course I want to show us at our best, even if I'm not always going to show us at our best. Yeah. Balance. Very important. <laughs> Very important. Trace, any feelings or thoughts on this question? Oh, wow. I have so many feelings and thoughts about this question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, should surprise no one. Um, no. <laughs> art, uh, in one form or another, has quite literally saved my life multiple times. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Big same. I, I think about yeah. um, 
if a dozen people were to scamper off across the galaxy and and try to restart the world, why wouldn't you bring beauty with you? I'm going to go right back to my first yeah. my first answer. It's mm-hmm. the same it's thing. First... That's okay, where hope lives. That's where love lives. That's where all of the things that you want to take with you when you leave the world behind, that's where they all live. They all live in creation and art and in expression and connection. So that has to be there or they're not people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that answer. It's a good answer. They both are. <laughs> I didn't just that... say yep this time. No. Yeah, you didn't. You did not just say yep. Nailed it. It's not, <laughs> it's not too surprising as people who both find creative work incredibly important. Um, I mean, yeah. it saved my life too. People ask how I do all the things I do. And the answer to that is if I'm not doing some sort of creative work, uh, something is missing from my life that is very important to me. So I guess it's not a surprise that we both consider it very important. <laughs> but <Yeah>. no, <Nah. laughs> no, absolutely. Not. Besides, collect a dozen people and I promise you will have somebody who's a musician and somebody who writes stories and somebody who just it's somebody true. who paints like you'll have that. Why would you have them leave those parts of themselves out? That would be a very sad and very oppressive state of being. And also, exactly what you didn't uh, want to do. So, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna like tentatively se- step my toe on a soapbox for a second. Ooh. Um, do it. You have a bunch of people whose work is to basically just exist and create this world and make things good, but they don't have to worry about the lights being on or there being food or shelter or clothing. And when people have room in their minds and their, their lives and their time, art naturally just bubbles up. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes just having that open space is all you need. And without that, you don't get to create, but once you have that freedom, it's just going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I agree. I know. I, I think we all know someone who would be creating more or at all if they were not trying to struggle in our society. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show and talking about This Planet Needs a Name. I think it was really illuminating and uh, uh, very moving in, in the same sense of the way that your show is. So good job. <laughs> thank you so much. You uh, really, I really appreciate the depth of the questions here. It was really neat to get okay. a chance to dig into some of this. Very much so. And thank you for having us. If you liked what you heard, you can support the crew of This Planet Needs a Name at needsanamepod.com slash support dash us. Radio Drama Revival runs on Screaming into the Void and the Nickels in the Swear Jar that are now quarters because of inflation. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of David. Hiya, friends. I've been traveling these last few weeks, and I got the opportunity to record one of my favorite sounds in the whole world. Well, my wife recorded it. I was driving. See, Michigan City, Indiana has this bridge, the Harriet Colfax Memorial Bridge, that is named for the city's long-serving lighthouse keeper. 
Colfax maintained the lighthouse from 1861 until 1904, where she and her partner, Miss Anne Hartwell, lived for 43 years, though the two of them had been the best of friends since childhood. Now, while Harriet maintained the lighthouse during the day, Anne ran a bookshop in downtown Michigan City, and from it operated the city's first lending library, until, with her enthusiastic support, the actual Michigan City Public Library opened in 1897. Two queer lighthouse keepers sweeping the beam of the lighthouse over Lake Michigan throughout the latter half of the 19th century, vouchsafing merchant boats and steamships and fishing boats that were hauling Michigan blueberries, Indiana steel, Illinois grain, illuminated in the light of their love. It makes me feel good. Makes me feel safe. Anyway, the bridge is made from metal, and it retracts and comes up when boats come through Trail Creek on their way in from Lake Michigan to the marina, and driving over it has a lovely, rich-sounding hum. Let me play it for you. Uh, and as I do, imagine two women, their 19th century hats hanging on stands by the base of the lighthouse steps, holding hands as the sun sets over Lake Michigan. Two lovers with the best sunset view the lake has ever afforded to anyone. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaolitz Indian tribe, and the Athfalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Diane Tapia. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalge and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Tigger Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. Welcome.